0: Hey everyone, this is Josh Itso, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary U Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, This podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 29 of the Fiduciary you podcast. My guest today is Stuart Ritter, who is the Retirement Insights Leader at T. Rowe Price and who I've known for about 20 years. Stuart is a gifted researcher, communicator, evangelist, and thought leader in the retirement industry. In this episode, Stuart and I discuss T. Rowe Price's recently published research on retiree spending and savings patterns preferences, and priorities, much of which flies in the face of conventional wisdom. We discussed the difference between retiree savers versus spenders, the rational, psychological, and behavioral tendencies of each group, utility theory, which is what makes someone happy and brings them satisfaction, the tools T. Rowe Price has created for advisors to be in a better position to understand where an individual is on the range from spending to saving, and how to apply these preferences to the advice they give, and much more. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the fiduciary U podcast. Stuart Ritter, welcome to the fiduciary U podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I'm excited to be part of it. Well, I'm excited to have you here. You and I go way back. We, we've known each other for probably a decade plus. Part of that's because you know we're both we both live in Baltimore, where T Rowe is is headquartered. But one of the things I've always admired about you is. The thought leadership that you do in your role at t-row price in fact we actually go back what's funny now that i think about it we go back longer than that even before Greenspring, because my co-founder and i pat collins when we were at morgan stanley and merrill lynch we actually started going to a napfa study group the national association of personal financial advisors and it was hosted by you at the t-row price campus
1: Yes, it and was. I think
0: that's when we first met. So we're actually talking about, you know, probably 20 years ago, both of us fairly early on in our career back then. It was funny, all the people who went there because they were fee-only RIAs and here are two guys coming in from two big wire houses. They looked at us like we were the enemy, but that's when we originally met probably 20 years ago. Yep, And you've, you've done, obviously had a tremendous amount of success at T. Rowe Price and played a really significant role in both the research that's been done, but but in in many ways, I think taking a lot of the research over the years that T. Rowe has done and being an evangelist for that within the industry. So why don't you take a minute for people who may not be familiar with you and your role at T. Rowe, why don't you share a little bit about what that looks like from your perspective?
1: Well, I, I appreciate all the kind words, and I've been lucky enough to be at a company like T. Rowe Price that's been focused on exactly what you described, which is doing research and better understanding how to better help people. And we've got an amazing team there, and I'm lucky enough to be able to tap into all that talent. So, half my job is uh, helping with and looking at research. My undergraduate degree is in, of all things, electrical engineering. So, I enjoy getting into all the quantitative data analysis part of it. But then the other half, as you pointed out, I I like the word and appreciate the word evangelizing, but it's the communication. It's how do you how do you understand what story that data is telling and then go out and tell that story? So my job is a combination of the two, figuring out what's new and different, what is not quite aligned with the conventional wisdom, What have we not exposed to the bright light of an Excel spreadsheet that gives us some new insights? And then how do we understand that? What are the implications when we're helping people? What are the implications for how people think about their retirements and how we help them with their retirements? So my job is a wonderful combination of understanding new things and then being able to share that story with others.
0: And you do it well. And I'm really excited for listeners. You know, you you and I, I think, I think I was still at Greenspring. So this was probably almost nine months ago when we first, it might have even been longer than that. It might have been close to a year ago when we first talked about this episode. And you guys were in the midst of developing this research around Retiree spending, uh, preferences, priorities and patterns. You recently, we didn't get a chance to connect. We were going to try to, but down at the Wealth at Work Conference in Nashville in October, you, uh, had a really well attended session that, that unfortunately I was not able to attend, but I heard well, you were doing your own. Well, I think yours was, was better, <laughs> better received. I, I heard yeah. incredible feedback about it and you and I. Reconnected, and our mutual friend uh, and your colleague at T Rowe Price, David Norris, who who was really kind of the driver of this. And so, yeah. what I want to talk about, or what we're going to talk about today, is really around not just this research that you guys have have recently published, but how advisors, especially, and those of us in the industry, but especially advisors who are really the tip of the spear as they're counseling individuals and employees how they can take some of the conventional wisdom that we've often heard about retiree spending and turn that on its ear in many ways and filter it through, I think, a new lens as they engage, communicate, and counsel individual investors. And and as we have talked about this and as I've read kind of through the research to, to prepare, what I really see it as is... I think what you've created, um, both in terms of the research, the way you've you communicated it, and even some tools that you guys have built that can be used by advisors is, I think you've created a better way to diagnose the preferences and priorities of retirees. And through that diagnosis, the prescription is going to be A lot better so why don't you talk a little bit about the genesis of this research and what prompted you to take a look at it and maybe some of the things that that as you uncovered what retirees were actually not just saying but actually doing with their money in retirement what were some of the things that surprised you relative to the way in the industry we've traditionally approached retirement spending and income in retirement?
1: Yeah, we have this wonderful researcher at Tiro Price, Shadipto Banerjee, PhD in economics, spent a whole bunch of years at Ebre doing research there. And one of the things he focuses on is, as you pointed out, actual behavior of retirees. So what are people really doing with their money? And when it comes to retiree spending, the industry has been working off of the the very helpful 4% guideline, For decades now, the idea that, you know, whatever, when you hit retirement, you multiply your balance by 4% and that's your first year spending. And then we assume people increase that dollar amount each year for the rate of inflation. And that lets them spend the same real dollar amount and maintain their lifestyle in retirement. So way to think about it is they buy a certain basket of goods and services that first year. And they basically buy that same basket of goods and services. Now There's some substitution in there, more healthcare, less something else along the way. But as prices increase, people just increase their spending through retirement. Or if you're, we're talking about real spending, they buy the same basket of goods and services. So it's the same spending throughout retirement. Well, uh, Shadipto looked at actual retiree spending. So he got a hold of the big database and did the analysis and, and said, wait a second, that is not what retirees are actually doing. So we had this idea in our heads, conventional wisdom of here's how retirees are going to spend. So we've built all these solutions, all this communication, all the words we use are built around the assumption that retirees spend a certain way. And what he found was when it comes to real spending, so we've got this idea that people spend about the same inflation adjusted throughout retirement, he discovered that when you look at all retirees, they spend about 2% less than conventional wisdom each year. So what's happening is retirees are actually buying fewer and fewer goods and services in that basket as they move through retirement. And, and it's about 2% every year. So you know, there are some other ideas out there of, well, you've got go-go years where they're spending more and then slow-go where they spend less and no-go where they spend more on health care. But that's not what the actual data shows. What the actual data shows is People just spend less and less and less and less as they move through retirement, which is very different from the got to maintain your lifestyle, got to spend the same inflation adjusted amount every year. That's a definition of success. That's not what retirees are actually doing. And, and you, you delineate
0: between this idea of retirement spenders, which are buy that basket of goods inflated by like what you just described versus inflation rate retirement revolutionaries which are really retirement savers and and what's interesting is only about a third 30 percent of people are actually the retirement spenders and that's where we 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 focus all of our time and our attention talking to people around you know why they should be spending more money about 70 percent of people according to your research are actually these retirement savers. And some of the interesting data points that came out as I was reading through the research, I think were a few things. One is it was the behavioral tendencies and, and kind of this utility theory, right? That that people pursue the things that give them the greatest satisfaction. And that there's this huge population of retirees, when you looked at the research, that their goal isn't to spend as much as they can to maintain their lifestyle, that they actually derive significant satisfaction from maintaining or growing their account balance you use this wonderful analogy where the spenders are like the types of people who they go buy art because they really enjoy art and they hang it up on their wall and it's really the ability to kind of like look at that art hanging up there where they get satisfaction and joy from as opposed to somebody who takes their account balance from their retirement plan and they put it up on the wall and that's put the statement up there that or their statement that brings them a lot of satisfaction and where that comes from. And if, if, as just, if you think about this as advisors, if you have someone who derives a lot, a lot of satisfaction, their goal, their preferences, their priorities are really around maintaining or growing their account balance, but you're talking to them about spending, there's going to be a real disconnect in terms of alignment of goals objectives and ultimately the advice that you provide so i thought that was fascinating i thought the other thing was you know conventional wisdom is the people who have more money spend more money but your research says something different as a matter of fact it says that the people who actually have probably the most ability to spend more in retirement they actually decrease their savings rates as not just as they transition but what i would consider as they settle into retirement
1: you know yeah, call they decrease it, their spending
0: their real spending, yes, they decrease their real spending. Yeah, right. Even though they have the means, quite frankly, that if they wanted to increase that spending, they could. Um, and this is really as people right they settle in. You know, the first couple of years, they're trying to get it figured. It's like getting a new job, You're trying to figure out get your feet yep. stabilized, figure out the lay of the land. As people settle into retirement, things really, really change. Talk a little bit about these kind of these preferences and this difference between these, these kind of these savers and spenders.
1: Yeah, You hit on it. The formal term is utility theory. So what is it that makes somebody happy? And we at T. Rowe Price have been focused on this for a while. We've incorporated utility theory into a number of areas. Even the design of our glide path it incorporates the utility theory. What is it that brings people satisfaction? So when we looked at the data, when we, when we looked at surveys, It requires a bit of a shift of how we in the industry think about what our goal is. How do we define success? Because up until now, for a lot of us, success has been defined by whatever the Excel spreadsheet shows. What does the math say? Well, the math says you can spend X. And then somehow, if you're not spending X, you're doing it wrong. That you've got to maintain your lifestyle. And maintaining your lifestyle means spending the same amount. But think about it a different way. The the whole purpose of this is how do we make people happy? What brings them, as you said, satisfaction? And for some people, the satisfaction is what they get from spending the money. So artwork. But for other people, the balance is it's own source of satisfaction, which is kind of weird because we keep telling people, well, you know, don't buy stuff now so you can save your money so you can buy stuff later on. And we get focused on the stuff, on the buying, that somehow that's the only possible thing that can make someone happy, the buying part. And as you pointed out, when we ask people, well, how do you view your balance? What do you see that doing? A third of people, 30% say, I see myself spending the balance. So what they're doing is they're they're adjusting their balance in order to maintain their spending. That's what we think retirement saving is for. But 70% of people flip that around. 70% of people say, I will adjust my spending. Specifically, I will decrease my real spending in order to keep my balance steady in order to maintain or even grow my balance because I get more satisfaction from seeing that balance than I would get from spending it on something else. I'm not gonna get as much satisfaction from the artwork or fill in the blank of anything else. I get the satisfaction from the balance itself, the number that's in that account. And it's just, it's a very different way to think about the reason we as professionals are here, that it's not, okay, let's figure out how much somebody can spend and kind of force them to spend it. I mean, when I have conversations with people, and even when we were starting with this, we could but that's not what you're supposed to do. You're doing it wrong if you're not spending it. And when we got into it and started thinking about it, we realized that's really not the way we should be thinking about it. You talked about the the artwork analogy. Let me give you another one. And again, this this shifted the way we were thinking about it. So, you've got somebody who's a foodie. They love going out to fancy restaurants. And Meet me to you, this, I was going yeah, to uh, uh, bring. you were going to bring that, that one. Up. Good job. All right. So you've got somebody who who loves the buzz of the restaurants and the and the, and the taste of the food and the the whole experience of going out and dressing up and all of that and and that's that's their lifestyle that's what they love doing. But let's say they move halfway through retirement and instead of being in their mid 60s now they're in their their early 80s and you know what the sense of taste is faded a little bit. It's a little harder to hear, especially in noisy environments. Getting around is a little bit tougher. So instead of going to a fancy restaurant, the person decides they want to go to a diner instead, or, or maybe they even just want to eat it at home. Now, if we look at the numbers, we go, they're doing it wrong. They used to spend X dollars on eating out, and now they're spending less money on that than... We sit across from the table from them and say, "You you need to increase your spending. You have to go out to the fancy restaurants. Otherwise, your lifestyle is going down. Your spending is going down. That must be wrong. When in reality, because of where they are in life and their life stage, going out to that fancy restaurant, well, now they can't hear as well. It's overwhelming. It's not as easy to get around. They get less satisfaction from that than they do from going to a simple diner. Or from staying at home. So, as professionals, and
0: maybe to yeah, take go ahead. Aside, maybe to take that yeah. further, and I think this is critical, especially for advisors to understand, is that preferences, priorities, and and patterns are not static. Yes, They're that's where I was going. Yep, right. they can change over time, and one of the most important things is, and you know, this is kind of one of my have been putting this on linkedin uh, in different cases one of kind of my core philosophies that i've leaned into over the past kind of since i left greenspring if you will is that you know words matter because they influence the way we think and the way we think shapes you know what we believe and what we believe drives how we behave and one of the most important things i think for advisors especially is you want to make sure that you're always aligned with your clients. And when you're aligned with them, you're going to be able to counsel them. And if you can help them understand themselves better, understand those preferences, those priorities, understand those patterns, you're much more likely to be able to counsel them and advise them in a way that connects deeply with them. And when you can do that, you're going to have much higher quality engagement and, and connectivity with your clients, but you're also going to be able to counsel them better. And this idea, this static retirement experience as opposed to a dynamic is a really important thing for advisors. Would you agree that they need to be very attuned and attentive to how these things are changing with their clients over time? And they need to have a dynamic approach that's flexible to address where their clients are at different steps or milestones within their retirement journey. Is that fair? (laughs)
1: Absolutely, and and to a large degree, advisors do that really well when it comes to the accumulation stage. I mean, people go through. I mean, thir- think of any thirty-year span of someone's life before retirement, and there's a lot of changes that happen there. And and we connect with them, and we ask the, okay, you know, are there kids involved? Are you getting a new job? Are you moving? Is a house? All of those kinds of things. We need to make sure we're doing the same thing in retirement and, and we don't go to somebody in the accumulate. Well, you know, you're not spending your money the same way you were spending it 30 years ago. Well, I'm in a different life stage. There are things I want now that I didn't know I wanted back then, all those kinds of things. It's doing the same thing when people are in retirement. And do you think there's a,
0: in some ways too, like this is, it's really about helping give permission to people to kind of behave according to the way that they're wired and if you think about utility theory the things that bring them a lot of satisfaction if somebody is you know if they want to spend i mean I, I i've been through a really interesting i kind of call it my little mini retirement leaving green spring and for the first three or four or five months i gotta be honest with you it was a lot harder i had a bit of a rough time kind of like transitioning into this new reality of mm-hmm my life a lot of lessons learned through it but you know when you when you retire and, and again i had kind of a mini retirement and then i realized three or four months in you know especially at 46 retirement kind of sucks like i gotta do <laughs> so, i gotta do i gotta do something mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: which which was which was good but i was amazed at how my relationship with money changed literally on a dime leaving greenspring which had become really successful and i never really kind of worried about money and mm-hmm. and you know was was blessed to, to we, we had done very very well and then i transitioned and you know i had an exit and i i now had a lot more assets than i ever thought i was going to have but there's something in me where i went from an abundance mindset to a scarcity mindset and it was a really jarring a really jarring transition and, you know, helping clients kind of understand who they are, what's important to them, what they value, giving them permission. Like if somebody wants to spin, like obviously you want to counsel them in a way that that the math is still important, I guess, is my point. Yes. Um, but the math is there to kind of support the, you know, the preferences not to dictate. Right. What, are, what are your thoughts around that?
1: Yeah, that's it. We need to look at both. And that means we need to look at both. Too often we're looking just at the math. What does the Excel spreadsheet say? Instead of looking at the person and saying, what's important to you? What what do you want to do? And if the person says, I don't want to spend the money, instead of responding, but the math says that you can, so I'm going to use the word should. And then if you don't, we're going to talk about how you're doing it wrong pull back a little bit, look at the person and say, okay, here's somebody who's one of the 70% who are savers, mm-hmm. who get satisfaction from the balance itself. So let me respond to that. Let me focus on that. Let me talk to them in a way that discusses maintaining or growing their balance. Let's talk about, okay, if they do want to adjust their lifestyle, their spending, let's talk about where that is, what makes them happy. And shifting that conversation a bit. So, making sure that as advisors, we are focused on those preferences. That as part of this program, we at T. Rowe Price put together a tool to help figure out what those preferences are. It's a, a you come up with a spender saver score. So, we recognize you're not really, no one's really one or the other. You're somewhere on a spectrum. We all I took that, spend by the money. way. I took that did, for myself, did you? by the way. I'm a 2.8. eight. I trend slightly Ooh. towards, spend. Okay. So, so there you go. So that, that's helpful information for you to have. And if there was somebody helping you, helpful information for them to have. So we put that tool together for exactly that reason. Where am I? What are my preferences? And it's not like, okay, I've done this once. I'm locked in for 30 years. You're, you're going to take it a couple of times over the course of whatever. it change. Standard. Yes, absolutely. It yeah. does change. So so as advisors, as we're thinking about it, making sure that our approach is, okay, who is this person and what are their preferences? And then what am I doing to connect with those preferences? You've talked about it a number of times. Am I aligned with what someone's preferences are? Because if if you're not, as an advisor, there's risk there. Right. That if you're talking past somebody, mm-hmm. that relationship starts deteriorating. You're not meeting the needs. You're not meeting somebody where they are. And at some point that, you know, gets bad enough that someone's like, okay, this person isn't hearing me. Mm-hmm. This isn't working right. So making sure that that alignment means that you're connecting with them and what those preferences are. And then it makes it a whole lot easier to have the conversations about solutions. Here's why we're doing this. Yeah. And interestingly, it could be the same solution that you apply to a spender as you do to a saver. It doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, certainly the solutions can change, but it could be the same solution, simply how you describe it, how you talk to them about what it will do for them. If you're doing a better job of connecting it to the preference they're interested in, you're simply going to be more effective.
0: I think that's, a, I think that's a great point. And if you take this, You know, again, I I think this framework you guys have created is a better way to diagnose and to understand those preferences. You know, my advice to advisors would be even to take it a step further. And once you have a better understanding of what someone's preferences are, dive or dig deeper to figure out not just what those preferences are, but why do they have those preferences? Because I think that is... That is something that could be is, is really, really impactful. And I through all this research and what you've said is really to treat people, you know, as as individuals instead of of these kind of like mass cohorts of folks, you know, some people, right. maybe they want to leave a legacy and this is generally part of the planning you know advisors i think feel more comfortable with like the formulaic scientific that's why we like spreadsheets right and monte carlo yep. analysis but i'm because, with you right it's it's not yeah. messy when you start to yeah. get into you know an understanding of why motivations are driving people it can get you know it can get a little messier and a lot of times we don't want that but understanding not only what people's preferences are but the motivations behind those preferences. And I think this came out in some of your research, you know, maybe somebody wants to maintain or grow their balance. They want to be a saver because they have charitable inclinations where they want to provide for their kids. Maybe they're risk averse. Maybe they're worried about this kind of unknown, like, I don't want to spend too much early on because what if something catastrophic happens, you know, in 15 years, like, will I be able to deal with that? It's really important to understand what those motivations are.
1: Absolutely. We kind of bucketed the potential motivations into into three areas, the rational, the behavioral, and the psychological. So rational is somebody who's got, for example, a specific goal. As you pointed out, I want to leave it to the kids. I want to leave it to a charity. I'm worried about a, a nursing home bill or healthcare expenses later on in life. And we have a whole other separate program we have put together about how retirees actually experience healthcare our researcher, Shadito Banerjee, got into the data and said, well, everybody thinks this one thing, but the data shows something else. So if anyone's interested in that, maybe we can do a whole nother podcast. The, and I'll
0: put that in the show notes as well. Okay. well. We'll link out to all of that so people can find some of this research that you guys have done. That, that'd be
1: great. And understanding you know, that goal that somebody has, or as you pointed out, I don't have a specific goal for this money, but I might want to spend it later on. And to spend it later on, it means I need to save it now. So understanding that as a motivation, as an advisor, then it, it leads you to different conversations. Okay, how much do you want it to give to the kids or charity? Or if it's really a medical issue, well, that might be better solved by an insurance policy. Rather than self-insuring by, you know, well, I'm going to take $300,000 and just set it aside. Well, you know what? You don't do that for your car. I mean, you might get into an accident. And it costs you $300,000, but that's not how we manage that risk. We manage it differently. And
0: that's a great uh, so point. Your,
1: your solution is different. Yeah. The other one might be behavioral and we at zero price have looked into this as well. Habit formation. The reason a lot of people have as much money as they do is because they've spent their life not spending as much as they potentially could, and they're comfortable with that. So when they get to retirement- And it's habitual.
0: They, those these, habits, like, yes. you've, you've enforced those habits for a long time. It's not like the first day you retire, you're like, oh, I'm going to change my habits and my behavior. I'm going to do a complete
1: 180. I'll be a new person. Right. Right. We're not, we're the same person we were, you know, the day before we retired. Okay. We get to sleep late now, but still a lot of those hardwired things are in there. So it's the, the rational, the behavioral, and then the more psychological. And that's where some of the preferences come in. Ebri did some research and asked retirees compare how frugal you are today in retirement versus how frugal you were before retirement. And, and they put this chart together. I know it's a podcast. So we, We don't have the opportunity to show it, but what happened is everything, everybody moved to the right. Everybody became more frugal in retirement. So some of those preferences change. They evolve. And as an advisor, if you're digging into the why, asking why someone is a spender or why someone is a saver, what are those motivations? That gives you a stronger understanding of who people are, a stronger relationship with them, and puts you in a stronger position to bring forward the right solutions described and communicated in the right way to make a better connection and a better outcome.
0: I think that's huge. At the end of the day, and I think you found this in your research, right, is, is so much of financial planning is behavioral. Like I'm convinced that 90% plus of successful financial planning is behavioral it's not informational it's not technical it's it's and, and in many cases like people know what they need to do it's just that they have a hard time actually getting themselves to do it i've talked about this a lot kind of on the podcast and i think the advisor of the future over the next 5 to 10 years really needs to become a behavioral finance expert like they need to live in this maybe less defined less formulaic world and really move into more of like a coaching role, right, with their clients, because they have to get their clients, again, if they're going to, if you can change their belief and their understanding of themselves, you now give them kind of permission to adapt, to adapt their behavior. But if you think about just, and, and some of this is in your research, like, how have we in the retirement industry, how have we evolved the way that. We've gotten people engaged and participating in a retirement plan. It's been not trying to change people's behavior, but in many ways using that behavior and that inertia in order to, you know, get them pointed in the right direction. Maybe talk a little bit about how you see the behavioral lessons learned from things like automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, default investing, how that can apply into you know, helping people transition and settle into retirement successfully.
1: Yeah, you started the show by pointing out how long the two of us have been in this industry. So we have been in long enough to remember that the old way of trying to get people to participate in their retirement plans and make investment decisions in their retirement plans kind of went the following. We'd invite people to a meeting at their employer and it would be an hour long meeting and we'd spend about five minutes talking about why you should save for retirement and then 55 minutes handing out mutual fund investment fact sheets and talking price to earnings ratios and correlation coefficients. And surprise that worked for some people who are as fascinated by the topic as we were. But for the vast majority of people, they wouldn't even show up at the meeting. So we what was our spent re-
0: more time figuring out like what food to feed yes. them at the meeting to
1: try to right. get them to the meeting then. Right, right. right. That, that was our response, right? Now we need to entice them to the meeting. Right. Okay, now we need to make the meeting mandatory. So basically our whole approach was we, gosh darn it, are going to try to change the underlying psychological makeup of people who really do not want to be as detailed as with this as we do. And that's going to be our solution and keep popping them over the head saying you're doing it wrong if you're not fascinated by price to earnings ratios. And then behavioral finance came along and kind of helped us make a transition where we said, well, wait a second. Okay. We're doing something that works for a small group of people. We've got all these other people out there with a different preference. They're not as interested in this stuff as we are. They're not engaging in the behaviors of signing up and saving more and and making investment choices. So if we better understand their preferences, how do we take that understanding? So we design solutions that match the preferences. Mm. And that's where automated services came from. It was us as an industry pausing for a second instead of saying, okay, here's how we want people to behave. Here's how they quote, should behave. So we're gonna keep bugging them until they behave the way we want them to, and said, all right, hang on a second. Let's look at how they're actually behaving. What do they want to do now let's design something that works for that. And that's what automated services were. And that's the success we've seen with those. So we're kind of talking about doing the same thing in retirement. Up until now, it's been, okay, increase your spending by 3%. Oh, I've run the analysis. You can spend more money. You should spend more money. Go spend more money. And for 70% of the people out there, that's not what they want to do. For for 30%, and again, it's all on a spectrum, For some people, that works, but for other folks, take the same approach. What's the preference? Let me understand that. Now let's shift just the whole approach we take to this based on that utility theory, based on the phrase we use at T. Price sometimes is wealth depletion aversion. People have an aversion to depleting their wealth. That's catchy, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That's why we called them savers instead okay. of wealth, and okay. you know, we, we tried to make it work. But still, the idea is, do we understand what people want and what they don't want? And are we helping them get more of the former and less of the latter?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting in, in the presentation that you you had put together that I took a look at in preparation for the episode, you guys... I was a history major in college. You were an electrical engineer. I You're was a history major. We know whose uh, neurons fire faster.
1: Well, um, wait a second. My master's is in political science. So okay, we're not too as far apart as you might think. Okay, all
0: right. Well, I still would say your neurons fire a little bit faster than yeah. mine. But but you used an analogy from history, from the Revolutionary War, with General Nathaniel Greene and kind of war fighting tactics. What was that story? Because I think that, again, I, I believe the stories are the most. I have a mentor of mine named Mike Donahue, who, who's an incredible guy, but he's 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 told me for years that that uh, and he's a wonderful storyteller. But he says that that he or she who controls the metaphor controls the conversation. And there was a really good metaphor that you used from history, from the Revolutionary War to kind of describe how we in the the industry need to adapt the way that we are engaging with the people that we serve. Do do you want to just maybe touch on that for a moment?
1: Sure, I'm a, a big National Park fan, so I've been to many of the sites. And so here's the setup. The year is 1781, and the revolution of the American colonies against the British was not going well. In the North, the British Army and General George Washington had kind of fought to a stalemate. So the British Army had sent part of their force down to the South, and they had been marching through Georgia and South Carolina and were basically <laughs> winning the war. And they had moved into North Carolina, and George Washington said, all right, I got to send somebody down there to do something. So he sent General Nathaniel Green down to the South to see if he could stop the advance of the British Army. And the two forces met at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which is Outside Greensboro, North Carolina, Greensboro named after Nathaniel Green. I went to
0: Forest, uh, which was in Winston-Salem, which was about thirty minutes from Greensboro.
1: There so you go. It's so hitting, so it's, it's, that's why now I that eat it up. Keep going. There you go. That's good. There's a connection, and and every time you you see a town named Green, you may want to check out who it's named after. And let me do a quick aside about what was going on with the fighting forces for the Americans during the American Revolution. And many of you are familiar with this. There are actually two components, two groups in the American fighting forces. There was the Continental Army. So those were the professional soldiers. They were drilled in professional techniques. They had you know, issued equipment, things like that. And then there was also the local militia, and we're familiar with that. The local militia are the, the local farmers and hunters and, and so forth. And the tactics that the two groups were comfortable with were very different. The professional army followed the conventional tactics. They would line up in in rows and the fields and face off with the other army, and the army's approaching, and, and they're standing fast and, and firing a bunch of times. The militia used Which was the the
0: traditional, just to kind of like put a pin in that, right? That was the traditional fighting style of standing armies throughout the world, right? And that's it. That that's the way that the British fought. And so you had the Continental Army, which was a less superior fighting force, going against a more superior fighting force, trying to fight the exact same way.
1: That's it. And and remember, all those folks who were leading the Americans were former British soldiers. So Yeah, that's the conventional approach. The militia were more hit and run guerrilla tactics. So behind the trees, behind the fences, hit once, run, hit again. So the approach that the Americans had taken up until that point was to try to get the militia to behave like the professional soldiers. They would tell them, okay, stand in the, in the rows. And and as the British Army is coming, you stand there, you fire a whole bunch of times. And remember, it would take a minute or so to reload between firing. And it wasn't a very effective approach. The the militia was not comfortable with that. They'd see this professional army coming and, you know, they weren't inclined to just stand there. And it made it very difficult for the American military leaders to get this to work. So at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, Nathaniel Green made a fateful decision that changed the outcome of that battle and and the ultimate outcome of the war. He said, okay, I've got these two groups. Instead of trying to get one group to act like the other, I'm gonna put a battle plan together that works with the way they already want to behave with their preferences. So at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, and if I get the chance to do the presentation for anybody who's listening, I've got a map up there and you can see three lines of the American forces on it. General Green said, okay, the first line is going to be all militia. And here's what I want you to do. When we give you the order to fire, I want you to fire one time and you're in the trees. I want you to fire one time from the trees and then turn around and run behind the second line of American forces. And militia's like, well, that's what we do anyway.
0: So yeah, I'm in. Giving then them second- permission to fight the way that they're naturally inclined to do. Exactly.
1: Second line is militia do the same thing. Wait till we give the order to fire. You're in the trees, fire once, turn around, and then run behind the third line. And the third line were the professional soldiers. The third line was the Continental Army. So here comes the British coming across the battlefield at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. And first line of militia fires into them, turns around, runs behind the second line. British keep coming. Second line fires, turns around. Everybody runs behind the third line. British keep coming. Third line fires. Now, at the end of the battle, the Americans actually left the battlefield, which is technically success. I'm doing air quotes for the British because they won the battlefield, but they lost one third of their fighting force and one quarter of their officers. A hugely devastating loss, essentially, for the even British though they side. Technically, a- Even though they technically won. They won the, they won the battle, land. right? Yeah. So one prime minister in Britain said, boy, another victory like that, and we're done for. And the change that Nathaniel Green made, which is what we're talking about here, right. is instead of trying to get one group of people to act like another, because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, I'm saying the same thing. Understand those preferences and build a plan that fits with those preferences. And I don't want to leave anybody hanging because a lot of people listening are thinking, wow, well, how did that war turn out? I mean, you told us about the battle, but what was the end result of this revolution in the American colonies? Well, after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, the British commander, a guy named General Cornwallis, decided that his army was so badly damaged that it needed to rest and recuperate and and refit. So he marched his army to a place called Yorktown in Virginia, where George Washington and the French surrounded him and turned the world upside down. And that surrender at Yorktown started that sequence of events with Nathaniel Green going, I've got two different groups. I'm gonna change the way I approach them And it literally changed the course of history. Now, yeah, we can have the opportunity to change the course of history for the individual people that we're helping by taking that same approach. What are the preferences? Yes, we look at the math, but then we look at the person and say, what is this person interested in doing? Let me give them permission to do what they want to do and we'll build a battle plan together.
0: Right. And that battle plan needs to be dynamic. Over time, yeah, right? as these things, and I think that's the you know the biggest lesson as I kind of read through this that intuitively you, you one of the great privileges of being in this industry in this business is that and I think it's a huge opportunity quite frankly, for the next generation of advisors as well is to be able to walk with people through retirement, and the key is you want to stroll next to them, right. You don't want to be yeah. too far ahead. You don't want to be too far behind. You want to make sure that, you know, the relationship, you're kind of walking and talking together. And that's what ultimately, I think, Take a look, taking a look at at what you guys have put together and using some of, you know, using some of these tools that you've created in order to increase the quality and the effectiveness of those conversations. And like you said, It's all about staying in alignment. I use like a sports analogy, right? If you're in a a, a close basketball game, you know, and you foul out with five minutes to go and and you're like the key player on the team, well, it's a strong likelihood that the team may wind up losing. And so you want to make sure that you stay on the court for the duration of the game. And the risk for advisors is if you're not in alignment with your clients, there's a good chance... You could foul out. That's obviously not good for you, but that's also not great for your client as well. So th- I think what you guys have put together and and that that tool that that spender saver score score yeah it's really really simple. It's like five or six questions that you go through. I mean it's it's in in a lot of ways when I went through it I was like and I appreciate the simplicity. Right? It's easy to make things complex, but it takes you know genius to kind of make the complex simple. Right? That's what Woody Guthrie said. But I was like, oh, this is really like a risk tolerance questionnaire for, you know, your spending versus saving reference yeah. in retirement. That's is it. Is that how you see? Is that like some of the tools you guys have created? What's the best way for advisors to actually use and deploy them?
1: Yeah, it's. It, we deliberately made it simple. So thank you for, for recognizing that. We we looked at what really drives some of this behavior. So we talked about it a little bit earlier, the fact that people with more assets actually tend to decrease their real spending faster. So they started a higher dollar amount simply because they have more dollars. But as I said, if you look at all retirees, you see real spending decreasing by 2% percentage points each year. When it comes to the high net worth folks, the top 20%, their spending decreases by 2.7% each year. So they actually drop their spending faster. They're buying even fewer goods and services each year. The folks at the bottom end of the scale, the bottom 20%, their real spending is pretty close to flat. Pretty stable um, when I looked at the data, it looked like. That, yeah, that was it. So so one of the biggest drivers of how people might adjust their spending in retirement is their net worth. So the first question, as as you probably recall, had to do with what your net worth is. And then the other four questions are, are preferences questions. So we start asking you about things like, how do you view your balance? How do you see, you know, how do you view spending? How do you feel about it? So it gets much more to the other side of the brain than just what the math would show. So keeping it simple, giving people a sense of it. But then as we talked about earlier, got to get into the why. What's driving it? What's motivating the spending behavior or what's motivating the saver behavior? And let me go back and give people some insights into how the savers manage to keep that balance intact because you alluded to it a little bit where you said, okay, you've got the first couple of years of retirement. Where people are figuring some things out. Here's something else the data showed us. The way savers are actually behaving is from a, from a mental accounting standpoint. So we're right into the behavioral finance again. Here's what people are doing. They're looking at five big spending categories. The Bureau of Labor Statistics goes out, does a survey about how people spend their money and they, they put it into a bunch of categories. So when we look at spending in five categories, housing, Clothing, transportation, food, and healthcare. So those five categories.
0: Which you called, you called foundational spending,
1: basically. Foundational five.
0: The foundational five.
1: Got that alliteration going. Foundational five. That is better
0: than wealth depletion. Aversion. Aversion. You know, you
1: you gotta have just one man's opinion. I, I appreciate the feedback. I'll take that back. So we've got the foundational five. And then what people do is they look at their sources of steady income. Now, when we in the industry use the word income, we put a whole bunch of things into that bucket. We say, okay, that's that's your your RMDs and your interest and your dividends and wages from working and and ad hoc withdrawals from your retirement plan and all this stuff. And it turns out, to quote a famous philosopher, I do not think that word means what you think it means. When it comes to actual people, you ask them, most people don't consider any of that part of their income. Is that a Princess Bride reference? What was it? It is, you got it, oh. There you go. I'm very impressed, yes, Inigo Montoya. I do not think that word means what you think it means. You killed my father. That's his other great quote, he's got a third one in there. I've been in the- the, Prepare to die. Yeah, well that one too. (laughs) So, so we, we digress. Okay. So we get did. Back on. Uh, what were we talking fund. about? Let's go. I like Princess Bride better. So, so we've got people who are looking at three things they look at social security, pension if they have it, and annuities if they have it. What people look at is their steady income the money that's coming in automatically every month without them doing anything. So, if I withdraw money from an account, I have to take an action to do that. Mm. What people are doing is mentally, they're matching their spending on the foundational five to whatever their income is from social security, pensions, and annuities if they have them. And if they do that, it means they're keeping their balance intact. That's how people, the savers, are maintaining and then potentially growing their balance depending upon how it's invested. So as an advisor, when you're talking to someone, understanding where they are on that spender-saver spectrum, and then recognizing that what the savers are doing is they're looking at that steady income. And the first couple of years in retirement, you, you see spending on the foundational five as higher than what their steady income is. But very quickly, like within five years, the two lines are almost overlapping, that people have adjusted their spending to match their steady income, and that's what keeps their balance intact.
0: Yeah, I thought there were some interesting things. Just one, when you guys look back, I think, you know, we always hear about the old days, everybody had a pension. And I know this is a Nevin Adams thing that he said, that that's actually not true. And even in your data, when I look back, like in 1989, I think 40% of people actually had a pension. So not everybody had a pension, only 40% of people. As of 2016, I want to say the number was something like, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent so obviously yeah. we know that pensions are are going away which you know when you start to think about product mix you know maybe things like uh immediate annuity be- becomes a way to you know for people if they're really thinking about like my income is more around what's just that steady kind of guaranteed if you will i mean maybe this is maybe this is where a product mix, where it, you know, maybe it's guaranteed income in a 401k plan. Maybe it's a immediate annuity that somebody buys in order to kind of like synthesize pension and so on and so forth. But really thinking about kind of uh, product mix and the solutions right. that are then deployed. I thought it was interesting in looking at the research is that, you know, you always hear. And, and I think the, the, one of the key takeaways here, right, is that conventional wisdom and rules of thumb are elegant in their simplicity but may not match up with reality. You know, you always hear about people spend 75 to, you know, 80% of their pre-retirement income. Like that's the number that you have to get to. But, you know, it was, what was interesting was it, it when you look at that, that kind of transition phase, call it the first five to 10 years, you know, you had some people, the range you guys used was like 80 to 120%. You actually have some people, a small percentage or smaller percentage of people who, once they retire, they spend more than they did pre-retirement. You have a certain yep. segment that spends about the same, and then you have a larger segment that actually spends less. But what was interesting was five or 10 years out, you still had those three buckets, if you will, or those three cohorts, but a much higher, the, the, the percentage of people who spent less in retirement than before, I guess on a relative basis actually expanded and the people who spent more it's like they kind of overspent the first couple of years and then they the percentage of people kind of transitioned into i'll spend in line or less than i did before i retired is that a fair assessment of of what you guys came up with
1: yeah that's a great description Uh, about five six years in half of people are spending less than 80 percent of what they spent before retirement and let me be clear we're not talking about the the gross income, 75, 80% of the gross income. That's not what we're talking about. This is looking at spending. So what were people spending before retirement and what are they spending after retirement? And again, conventional wisdom says, well, to may have the same lifestyle, you need to spend about the same. So we expect people to spend about the same. And what we find is 50% of people are spending 80% or less than what they were spending before. So let's retirement. just
0: use round numbers. Let's say I spent $100,000 a year pre-retirement. You know, you get people who kind of fall in the, you know, 50% of people like 5 or 6 years out were actually spending less than $80,000 a year.
1: That's correct. Right. That's what it showed. And again, so how are they doing that? Okay, they're moderating their their spending on the foundational five to what they're getting from the steady income and your your point about product mix is an interesting one so so think about both sides of it so people are spending to their steady income well if they want to buy an annuity well that means immediately depleting their balance so so recognizing where people's preferences are and understanding it at a more deeper level gives us an opportunity to have better conversations with folks because if we're talking about solutions that don't align with those deeper preferences. Even if the math says something or conventional wisdom says something, again, we're right back to that disconnect right. where I love your analogy. You don't want to foul out. If you're not, if you're not in the game, you have zero influence. Right. So the more you can recognize what people are looking for and see all sides of it, the better a position you're in to have those conversations and come up with a solution that fits somebody.
0: You know, one of the things as we start to kind of wrap up, you had mentioned was, and maybe you could talk a little bit further, because I just think it's interesting. I'd, I'd be interested in how you guys do this. But, you know, you had mentioned this idea of utility theory is kind of built into your glide path within, you know, TRO's target date solutions. Like, what does that mean? How How, how exactly is that done?
1: Well, that would be the opportunity to bring in our investment professionals to the podcast. So I'm not the right person to get into the detail there. What I can say is that we're recognizing that that utility theory and focusing on what gets people to the point where they're gaining that satisfaction, that's the focus we all need to be having in the industry. I mean, certainly the math is there. Certainly all the analysis is still there. It's being additive. It's bringing in something that you're not getting anywhere else, whether it's in a, a glide path solution or as an advisor, if you're having these conversations with people where you are talking about their preferences, where you are focused on utility theory, probably won't use that phrase with the actual individual, but you're, you're doing things other people can do. And then you're doing something else. You're doing something more that helps differentiate you and and brings it into the conversation. And the other thing I wanted to mention has to do with the retirement plan design itself. So it's what kinds of things are available. If you've got somebody who is a spender and wants steady income coming out of that retirement plan, is there a systematic withdrawal option? Is that part of the plan design? If you've got somebody who's more of a saver and only wants to take out money when they have to, Is there an ad hoc option? So thinking about the plan design, thinking about the investment options that are in there. If you've got somebody who wants to maintain or grow their balance, are the investment options available to do that? Are there adequate equities so that people can do that, whether it's within a glide path solution or available separately? And then the other thing to really pay attention to is the communication. How are you talking about what those options are within the retirement plan. Because as you pointed out, it's not as if people just suddenly change when they get to retirement. Because one of the questions I get is, well, it sounds a lot like you're talking about retirees, but of course the people in the retirement plans and the accumulation stage, they're not retired yet. Well, yeah, but they're still the same people. Right. So if all you're talking about in your communication is, hey, this is going to help you spend your money when you get to retirement, deplete your balance you know, we're going to talk about how to, how to decrease that balance for, for whatever and turn it into income, whatever, you know, those kinds of things are that may be attractive to some people. Think, though, about all of the words you're using and all of your communication. Mm-hmm. Are you communicating to the savers? Are you talking about potentially maintaining and growing their balance? Are you talking about, you know, maybe you will change your lifestyle in retirement instead of saying, oh, you have to maintain the same lifestyle or you're doing it wrong. So looking at the communication that's associated with that retirement plan as well and making sure that you're accommodating both people and understanding those preferences appropriately.
0: Something that kind of came to mind, again, trying to think about how advisors can make this, you know, actionable, especially if you're doing, you know, you have a, you know, a financial wellness offering, or, you know, if you've got kind of mindshare with participants, you know one of the interesting things if you 're an advisor and you are engaging with participants would be you know maybe you help people walk through these five simple questions to understand who they are and then you figure out a way maybe in your crm you you categorize you know people between spenders and savers, and you know maybe you have a way you build in a way to track that so the communications then that you you, you kind of have a multivariate communication strategy where You know you are reaching out to the people to the employees within your plans with the types of communication that match their wiring pattern and their 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 preferences you're going to have a much higher possibility of connecting with them if you communicate with the you know using the language that they can understand so that's a that that's just probably if 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 i was still In the business of uh, engaging with employees and participants, like that's one of the things I would be trying to elevate as an advisor is, you know, how do I help as many participants as possible understand the way they're wired? And -hmm. then how do I come up with communication strategies and outreach to target those folks? So yeah
1: and exactly what you're talking about we we've put a program together that even moves beyond spender or saver or our visualized retirement program which gives people the opportunity to really think about the kinds of things they want to do in retirement who they want to spend time with you mentioned kind of your your practice retirement there being a rough patch you know what what's the why that people have what gives them meaning and fulfillment and doing that. Proactively so that they've got a better sense of who they are now, who they might want to be in retirement. And if there's a spouse or partner involved, as we all know, not everybody is the same as everybody else. So where do they each fit on the spender-saver score? What visions do they have for retirement? So all of these opportunities and 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 we've got an e-workbook available so people can go through the visualizing process for their retirement. All of these things can help you as an advisor be more effective as, as you keep pointing out, Josh, on, on understanding the person, understanding their behavior, understanding their preferences, connecting with them on that level. And that deepens the relationship puts better solutions in place, better communication, and makes everybody more successful when it comes to those outcomes.
0: And you bring up an actually a great point that we could spend the next 30 minutes talking about. But when you have, you know, partner spouses, what do you call it? Where, you know, both oars need to be in the water rowing in the same direction to really have success. If you think about a really powerful outcome of this is, You know, if you can get partners together and help them each understand their preferences, if they're the same, it's probably going to make life easier. But if they're different, that's where a lot of friction comes from, or that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of misspent energy and burning a lot of cycles. And so the power of helping couples understand their preferences and come to appreciate one another's preferences and then figure out a way to navigate Okay, if you're a, a, a saver and I'm a spender, how are we going to come up with a strategy that values both of our perspectives, but yes. where we can kind of work together instead of we can be the militia and the Continental Army instead of the Continental Army against the British Army, if you will, instead of us fighting and and going to war, you know, how can we be on the same side of the fight, if that right. makes sense.
1: And if you complement each other, you're much more effective together.
0: This was a, was, was awesome. I like, I, you know, I'm a research geek. So like when I was reading all this stuff, Stuart, I was like, this is right up my alley. But where can people go to stay connected with you and to learn more about some of these really good resources that T Row has um, developed and offer?
1: You can contact your T Row Price representative. If you have one, you can come to our website, T RowPrice.com forward slash FI for financial intermediaries. And we have all of the programs that I described there, as well as a host of other information, the white paper that was built based on the research and then the presentations we've put together, tools that we have available. So get in touch with us, whichever way is easiest for you. We want to match your preferences and then we'll make sure that you've got the information you need and the tools you need to put this into action and be more effective helping people.
0: Awesome. The one question I ask at the end of everything, so right before we wrap up is, you know, my one of my personal missions is to teach people to be better fiduciaries and to make them smarter fiduciaries. I always ask guests, what's your one best piece of advice that you would give to somebody who is a fiduciary, whether it's an advisor, whether it's a retirement plan committee member, what would be your best piece of advice?
1: The more you can understand what someone's trying to accomplish, the better a job you're going to be getting them the right solution.
0: All right. I like it. Succinct. Good. There it is. Well, Stuart Ritter, it has been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. And, 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 uh, I think this was for advisors that actually want to kind of take the next step and they really want to start engaging with understanding the why and not just the what with their clients. I think you guys have put together some, some great resources. So thank you so much. And you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Congratulations on the success that this has had and all the growth that you're experiencing. I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of it. Thank you. Awesome.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Stuart Ritter from T. Rowe Price. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary U Podcast.